so this weariness, which I'm not for this moment, um, we're doing this for each other. We're doing this to protect all of us. So, so thank you. And I'm also aware that there are some new people here tonight, and um, I can't really see everybody out there, and so and not, we're not facing you, so maybe we could start by just introducing ourselves. And I'll start by saying I'm Dora Lee. Dora Lee. Thank you. I'm Sarah. Sarah. Oscar. 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 Raphael. Raphael. Cody. Cody. Dunya. Dunya. Will. Will. Dorothy. 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 John. John. Charles. Charles. And up there, let's see, I can't see everybody, so uh, Meg, can you start? Except we can't hear you. Huh. That's because I was muted. I was Meg. 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 Oh, Meg. Um, Carolyn. Carolyn. I think you'll just have to speak out because there is no way to know who's next. <laughs> Rich. 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 John. Oh, sorry. Joan. 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 Mard. Todd. Todd. Simone. 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 Yeah, 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 hi, Simone. Aaliyah. Aaliyah. Dave. 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 Linda. 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 I can't see who's next to Dell. Yeah. Marilyn and is that Carolyn? Vaughn. Vaughn, okay. Vaughn. <laughs> well, great. It's wonderful that we're all here. And uh, I was I was just struck that we were chanting the harmony of difference and equality and the one of the last parts said, in the light, yes, there is darkness, but don't take it as dark. And in the dark, there is light, but don't take it as dark. I mean, I can feel my mind going, what? Like, what does this mean? And, and maybe we can't really say what it means right now, but maybe we could feel it sort of, but there's something about interpenetration. Light and dark, dark and light. Light is dark and And so that sort of fits, I guess, where I want to start my talk tonight. Um, and I want to start by just telling you that two weeks ago today, I lived through my early birthday present, offered to me by my husband, 
which was an opportunity to go salmon fishing, um, one of my dreams, on a chartered fishing boat with a captain and a mate uh, on the coast of Bodega Bay. So here we are, here we were at the dock and the, it was a very cloudy day. We didn't really see the sun the whole time and it was cold. The waves were strong and the ocean seemed dark and opaque. Feeling nervous, I was also excited. We got into the boat and the captain then explained how we walk on the boat, on the deck of the boat. And actually you can't walk because the boat is moving back and forth so much that he said, you have to know what railing you're gonna grab onto, otherwise you'll fall down. And so that was the first instruction. But then the captain said, well, I wanna tell you what you do if something happens to me and my mate. How can you call to help <laughs> if we're not available? So it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, just what I wanted to learn. So out we go, out to sea, but only a mile or so. And at that point, we were putting our fishing line into kind of a holder on the side of the boat. And the captain said, just watch the line. And when it starts to rattle back and forth, grab it and wrestle with the salmon. I mean, I had never imagine doing anything like this, but there were no salmon fighting. So, so then the captain said, okay, now we have to go out um, 10 miles into the ocean so that we can catch rockfish. Uh, are you ready, he said. So for 45 minutes, we sped through the ocean, 16 nautical miles an hour, bouncing, swaying, I was sitting on the deck, I had a big hat on, I had four layers of clothes, I was shivering. I thought I just had to sit still because I didn't want to feel up. So uh, I was praying, I didn't feel up. I wouldn't throw up, we wouldn't throw up. Um, and still I noticed that the surface of the ocean was very dark. But I knew that down there, deep down there, it was also dark and cold. And then I heard my teacher say, as bodhisattvas, we live at the bottom of the ocean with all beings. As bodhisattvas, we live at the bottom of the ocean with all beings. I thought, this is really incredible. I mean, I know our practice invites us to go into the deep, into the dark. Don't just follow monkey mind. This is the ego skimming on the surface. Remember, not knowing is most intimate, but go into the dark. Down there in the deep, dark sea is life, creatures, plants that have been living down there for millions of years well before and beyond human purpose. I heard the voice of the living Dharma. It's not a human construction. It's unfathomable. All beings, sentient and insentient, express the Dharma. The impermanence of all things 
the activity of the empty field offering possibilities for compassion and wisdom, the truth of the interconnectedness of all beings, suffering is relieved upon hearing the Dharma. But suddenly the deep dark ocean was no longer a metaphor. It was real, physical, and alive, endlessly, alive beyond human purpose, necessary. This living truth emits from the physical. The natural world transmits the Dharma. So I wonder, what does this say about our practice? My teacher, Roshi Diane Martin, she says, the body is the form of emptiness. All bodies, rockfish, a hundred feet below the surface, the seaweed waving in the undulations of the water, the rocks on the cliff, the birds diving down, the fish, my body, your body, our body. The body is the form of emptiness. Dogen says, essence and form are not divided. The principle that the body and mind are one reality is being constantly spoken by the Buddha. So, but if you just say the body is the form of emptiness, it sounds a little bit static, in a way, or fixed somehow. But we can go on and remember that living is an ongoing process. The Dharma permeates everything. So form is moving into formlessness. And emptiness or formlessness is moving into form always, unknowingly. Living is an interconnected activity. So, Rabbi Anderson, in his book, Warm Smiles and Cold Mountains, he's giving different Dharma talks, he says, the Buddha asks, why do we say body? He says, we are affected, therefore we say body. The body is not a thing. The body is that which is affected. Buddha says, objectively, physicality is the composition of the four great elements. Subjectively, physicality means being affected. The body is actually a location where we are affected. So this is really our everyday life going on, being affected. I'm affected by riding the surface of the deep sea and sending down my fishing line into the unknown ancestral life below. And if you really pay attention, so much arises at once, at that moment of being affected. Our ego may try to loudly give one view or demand, but actually everything rushes in, ready for the opening, the next fresh unrepeatable moment. You will go on no grass. Just outside the door, grass. I'd even say not even going out the door, still 
The breath is balance. Contact, being affected, is immediate. However, in this contact, our conditioned mind usually responds with habit, with unconscious beliefs, like I'm not good enough, or if only I were less afraid of speaking out, then with tendencies we have to hold on or turn away, to seek comfort, all of this rushes in at that moment of being affected. Abstract concepts come in and living reality we miss because concepts and reality are entirely different. So we could ask, can you imagine shifting your orientation so that you're living in how you are affected? Remember, the body is actually a location where we are affected. And this process is happening now. Our living is now. Our vow is now. When we are fully present, embodied in this moment, something bigger is already happening. If we are thinking, our mind is elsewhere, and we're not present. The now, the present, is actually not even an event. It's an opening. An opening where the activity of prajna can enter in. Because remember, the dharma permeates everything. Now, Anderson also distinguishes attending from thinking. By not thinking, we're shifting our attention from our tendency to conceptualize and then try to live the concepts. We tend to, I'm sorry, we tend to conceptualize and then try to live the concepts rather than enter the full mystery of life. But I need to back up for a minute because in a certain way, this is a little too general, talking about all beings. Um, because if we talk about human beings, human beings are living a conundrum. We are living the tremendum as a conundrum. Now, the sort of secular definition of conundrum is a difficult problem that can't be solved by our usual thinking mind. So, for example, you're 18 and you're applying for your first job and you're going for the interview and your employer says, well, what is your experience? And that person says, well, I don't have any experience. So, how can I have experience if I can't first have a job where I don't have any experience? That's the conundrum. Because when you try to figure it out, you can't. But for us, our conundrum is double. We're living the conundrum of our conditioned life where there are no solutions exactly. You can't get away from the conundrum, the mystery. We can't leave the path of life. But we are also 
the living body of the Buddha. So we are offered the potential to let go of form. Remember, the body is the form of emptiness. To discover the formlessness that's always present. To enter a leap of consciousness into the interconnected tremendum of our lives. In the most ordinary of our lives, our infinite nature comes alive in this vow of now. So our zazen is really an invitation to sit at the pivot, the Dharma gate between the condition and our Buddha nature, the unconditioned. And sitting at this pivot is when Prajna can work and come to the surface and transform our lives. So we could ask, what happens when we begin our zazen? For many, this is a period of settling in. Our minds are very busy, our bodies are fidgety. Um, we may start telling ourselves, well, we should do this or do that to help relax. And we often are invited to notice our breath because our breath brings us into the moment, to the whole embodied now. Our minds are going somewhere else. But um, actually, when we chant, we say, the Dharma gates are boundless. I bow to enter them. That's an amazing truth. But I guess tonight I just want to offer a couple of practices that I think might open this Dharma gate of the pivot um, from the perspective of our physicality. Um, so through directly coming into our embodiment with now, one way to do that is to just notice sensations, tensions, tightness, emotion, and not make a story out of it, not go to the concepts about it, not return to names. Like, in Bodega Bay, we, we had the rental house and with two friends of ours, and uh, I woke up one morning and my friend Neil was already out in the kitchen making food and making fruit, and um, I didn't really notice that I was very tense inside. I kind of leaked out and my whole patterning, my habits came in. Oh, I should go out and be friendly and talk to him. And so, uh, at first, my awareness wasn't there. I wasn't attending. Um, but then I realized, oh, it's, it's my arms are tight, my shoulders are tight, even my heart. I still was trying to talk myself out, to walk out. So I wanted to say for me, telling myself to attend to the body. Sometimes I don't really want to do that. <laughs> So, so it's kind of that kind of awareness or that remembering. Um, so I said, okay, I'm just going to pay attention. And as I just let myself feel the attention, the tightness in my heart, I started to cry. And as I cried, the words that came up were, 
only be with myself when I'm fully in solitude. And it was it was a relief. I felt something open to me. And then there was this longing, this longing to just be myself in solitude. Because it's just so simple, so free. So all this was swirling up, and I said to myself, it's okay. I'm solitude. Last week, Sarah was talking about self-compassion and self-care, and just to say that, it's okay, beloved. So then I decided to stay in my bed and sit zazen. And after my zazen, I got up and went into the kitchen, and I was just really glad to see the room. So that's just my sort of example of this coming in and letting go of the concepts and the, the habit patterns that we have to see what's really there that wants to open. And I don't know, some of you might be familiar, I think, with the Wheel of Life and Death, which is this sort of pictorial wheel that's very complex in a lot of ways, so I don't want to go into all of that, but there are 12 links on this wheel, and each link is a, an expression of the way in our social human conditioning, in our conundrum, we create boundedness in our life. We create our own suffering. And by working with the wheel, you begin to develop practices that um, begin to free you from that kind of boundedness. And so the fourth link is um, the link of name and form. And there's many different pictures, but the wheel that I have, <laughs> it's, it's a boat on some kind of body of water, and there are waves. And there are two people in the boat, three people in the boat, two people are sitting in the front, and then there's one person in the back with an oar. And um, I learned this from my teacher, that one way to understand this is that the two people in front are name and form. But the actual practice is to let go of the name and form. And the oarsman will actually keep us in the waters, in the stirring, in the tumult in a certain way, in the not knowing. And that that's actually the way through, is to stay in the tumult. There's one phrase that says, you have to enter the tumultuous waters in order to get the fish that you need. You have to stay in the tumultuous waters in order to get the fish that you want. So this turning is, is a Dharma gate to stay in the waters of not knowing, waters where the, it's dark. Um, because also, you can't practice compassion unless you leave the desire for peaceful water. You can't practice compassion unless you leave the desire the peaceful waters. So again, this Dharmagate is an invitation to be okay, even in the tumultuous waters, even in the dark, even when there's a not knowing of these ancestral 
true state of the bottom of the sea. So then I just want to tell you about the sixth link, which is the link of contact, which is just another more physical practice. And contact really is sort of the same as um, the body that's being affected. Contact is when life rushes in and there's a contact that's made, there's a allowing of that contact to occur and to notice what rushes in. One of the pictures on the wheel is um, a man and a woman together touching each other. It could be any of us coming into contact together because at first what rushes in is our habits, past memories, our family of origin dynamics, all of this rushes in. However, I've learned that if you don't go with the story of what rushes in, but stay with the energetic level and the experience of contact, that becomes the dawn gate into something more. So, so you could just do this every time you're walking along, say, okay, what quality of contact am I embodying in this moment? Like you might notice, oh, gosh, I didn't realize how distracted I am. Or you might notice, oh, I just feel um, dead. Or there's a quality of, of delicateness or lightness or, or tenderness. You know, it's sort of a, it's really kind of beautiful to just feel the energy of the contact. Mm-hmm. So, like, one night I suddenly I was trying to cook dinner and I was not noticed that I was like ripping the plastic off the cauliflower. And not only ripping, but it, you know, it was just movement of aggression almost, impatience. And just feeling it, but with this attending, this awareness, everything started to shift. My energy changed. I came down into this moment of Appreciating the cauliflower, noticing um, cutting the vegetable, feeling the presence of the people around me. Um, a couple of days ago, I was in our in our garden, and we had this little pumpkin plant. I never grown a pumpkin before. Mostly, all I saw were the leaves, and I looked down, and there were these two beautiful, very small. And at first, it was like almost like light, the energy of light just spinning. And then I noticed it's pulled back, like this energy pulling back. And I was like, well, what is that? So you can see that just by paying attention, even questions start to emerge, like, What's this about, or what's happening? And I eventually, I finally understood that it's in me. This beauty, this perfect life, this new birth. Almost like I was going to lose myself in that. So, so again, this is just kind of an offering of a way to practice from this level of embodiment of 
the body being a form of what's happening in the moment. So, um, I'm going to come back to the seat, um, back to my journey out to sea, because even after we got on shore, I was still feeling the sense of trying to sit as still as possible, fearful of moving and throwing up. I was still huddled in the chair as I banged back and forth with the rhythms of the waves. The dark seemed only dark. How do I connect with this unfathomable deep ocean life? The non-human transmitting of the Dharma. But I realized maybe I'm stuck, maybe I'm stuck in a kind of fearful mind state. Contemplating the real deep dark ancestral ocean was overwhelming, like it's all down there and I'm up here. But then I found this quote from the Ancestral Hall Anthology, and it says, when living beings are deluded, their natures as frozen mind become mind. But when living beings are awakened, the mind melts away and becomes nature. When living beings are deluded, their natures as frozen mind become mind. But when living beings are awakened, the mind melts away and becomes nature. So later that day, after barely finding our sea legs, we were now walking on land, we found a trail that was on a plateau looking out over the sea. I just was walking along and there was this one of those signs, you know, where they tell you what the fauna is or the plants or whatever. And there was a sign and on the sign was the word upwelling. You ever heard of it? Upwelling? I have not heard of it before. I mean, upwelling is a movement of the wind that pulls the surface of the ocean water back creating space for the upwelling of the cold, dark, deep ocean waters to move upward to the surface of the sea. The colder, deeper water rises to the surface, bringing plankton and other microorganisms that become food for the growth of fish, birds, plants, and other wild life. This is the natural process through which surface water and the deep are moved by the wind and there's an inherent turning, bringing the depth and the surface into interaction for the sake of further life. This alive 
ongoing flow from the depth to the surface, the parting of the surface that binds is in the way so that deep nutrients can come up. This is built into everything. This is in nature all the way through. It's in ourselves. The ancient non-human life force offers itself to the world of becoming. Everything is interconnected. Nature itself is the Dharma. And our precious Sazen, our precious Sazen is an upwelling. Our Sazen does itself. We can trust it. It's the living mystery. Our Sazen brings us to the gate, opens the interaction between our surface conditioned lives and the depth of the vision that arises through our transformation. We can trust this. It's the living mystery, the truth that the Dharma permeates everything. <clears throat> so I'd like to welcome any of your experiences that come up, uh, any thoughts that you have, questions. Sarah. Did you catch any fish? <laughs> <laughs> well, there were five of us on the boat, we caught 16 fish. Oh my goodness. And it tasted really good. <laughs> <laughs> the literal physical nurturing <laughs> from the death. Yes. I can see the fish. I mean, in the ocean, there is fish. You don't take it as fish. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, you're expanding and don't take it as dark. Don't take it as light. Yes. Beautiful. I also like, thank you. I like the conundrum. And you used another word, tremendum. What? Well, tremendum. Was, tremendum. Yeah. You didn't speak on tremendum. Uh, and I, I liked, I mean, uh, I, I like how you use that word conundrum in such a poetic way. And uh, it, it ties in with the uh, chanting that we did. Um, thank you. Well, thank you. Maybe you can speak a little more. Well, tremendum. Tremendum, well, we kind of, that was part of our practice circle about a month ago, and I brought that phrase in. Tremendum is a profound mystery that is beyond our comprehension. So we're living in this profound tremendum. And we're living as a conundrum. 
you know, it's just, I mean, there's so many dimensions to it, but it's not that we're here to, to solve our life's problems. We're here to, to live in a different way. So, yeah. it's saying, in life there is conundrum, but don't take it as conundrum. <laughs> <laughs> or, in conundrum there is life, but don't take it as life. Oh, okay. I mean, let's see. I don't know. I have to think about that a little bit. Well, it's, it's the same. Say more how what it means to you. Well, it's the same as in the dark there is light, but don't take it as light. In the light there is dark, but don't take it as dark. Mm -hmm. And so what that brings to the forefront, what, what that brings to the mind is, is the same as in life there will be pain and suffering. There will be ups and there will be downs. But don't take it personal. No. Yes. Not but, but and yeah. don't take it Yes, because it's, it's, it's the condition of life. It's the conundrum of all life. Yeah. Yes. And this sort of dual conundrum that we're also the living Buddha is sort of an invitation to see at the pivot, you know, the unconditional coming in, so that whatever forms or stories we're telling ourselves or situations we think we can't get out of, that's all the mind trying to put names to it. If we let go of that, then that actually allows something to open that is, you know, the form moving into form less. There's a living activity that's always wanting to happen. And if we have that sort of um, frozen mind, then it would stay in the form that is there. And that's what this whole process of our practices is about. How to move in that kind of bottom of the ocean life. And that's the nugget in the conundrum. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like saying it's the riddle in the middle. <laughs> I think we have to have a little poetry blog or something. Thank you, Wanda. Thank you. Just to pay attention to all of you that I see out there, is there anyone that would like to offer something? or? Um, Dorley, it's Joan. Um, I'm sure you've heard the word, the words, um, you've heard about. Well, I think Malia was raising her hand or not. There's a square that's lighting up. Oh, I, I was, I unmuted myself. Can you hear me? Is Joan? Yes, Malia, is that right? You have your hand up? Okay, I see what happened. No, I didn't, I didn't have my hand up. No, it's Joan. This is Joan. Um, I had a question. Have you heard of radical acceptance? And I wondered what, how you would, it's, for me, it's very hard to apply radical acceptance to the conundrum of, of life. Um, you know, aging and death and so on. So do you have any thoughts on how you would apply radical acceptance to that? 
I mean, I'm not sure I'm, I'm connected to that particular term the way that you've learned about it. Can you say a little more about what's hard about applying that? Just so I can get well, with you a little more. I think radical acceptance is, is realizing is, well, you know, the whole idea is um, to accept what is. And sometimes, say, for example, my mom died and I am having so much anguish and pain over it, but I need to accept that fact. I don't like the idea, but it's something I need to learn to accept. So you force yourself to accept the way something is whether you like it or not. I see. Well, that, that's a challenge because that's sort of an instruction you're giving yourself. Whereas I think what I was trying to offer was if we can sort of let go of those sort of injunctions or names or, or concepts and just stay with, you know, the tumult that's still there for you in your grief where all is there, but to be attending to it, being with it, because without the naming, and that's when it can begin to open up into something more. So you're more present with yourself as it is, not trying to get somewhere, if that makes any sense. I, I don't know. I think we lost the volume again, Larry. No, she's muted now. She was oh, listening. she muted. Oh, okay. Good. So I hope that communicated to you. I don't know. Thank you. Yes, it did. Thank you. Thank you. Oscar? Oh, Oscar? Yes. Thank you, Raphael. Um, so uh, that reminds me of something that I heard uh, from my teacher recently. Um, if I can remember how he put it, when you become, when you completely become something, you become free of it. So, um, the context was, was dealing with suffering and, uh, and the difference between escaping suffering and becoming free of it, stopping suffering and becoming free of it. And, uh, and becoming friendly with it, intimate with it, not separate from it at all. His proposal was, is to become free of it. I was also, and something else I heard, uh, I was, I was uh, reminded of by, by the sixth link, uh, your description of the sixth link of uh, causality the, the um, folks on the boat. And um, the proposition was that the, the boat of compassion is never rowed over still waters, over placid waters. Um, so there's always the mud uh, with the lotus. Your talk, your talk covered so much ground, really, and I loved, I just loved the metaphor of um, the mind and nature and sort of uh, turning from ice to water, 
and back again. And I wonder if that, you used the term pivot a few times. I wonder if, you know, is that the change? That Could you talk a little bit more about, about the pivot? Well, I'm still sort of with what you were saying earlier there, too, about becoming the suffering and being fully embodied in the suffering. And that's what is free, because we're not caught in being afraid or trying to get away or thinking that it's going to destroy us, too. So we get afraid of, of the suffering. And yet that's kind of a hindrance, because it is part of what's happening, it's part of everything. And the practice, I think, shows us that we don't have to be afraid, that it won't destroy us, that this capacity to be with, to attend, is incredibly powerful. Um, so I just wanted to respond to that. And, uh, you know, the, the pivot has, the way I feel that I guess in myself is that it's, it's sort of like an opening that happens like the waters being blown off as we sit both with whatever our conditioning is hap is that's happening the thoughts that are arising the the wish something would be different than it is in my situation sometimes i have long conversations with what i think i want to say to somebody i mean all those things are going on so we're not getting rid of any of that but by noting it and coming back to the breath or, you know, the letting go of the concepts and the thoughts and the stories, something starts to ease and open and there's a little bit of rest. And then in that rest, that's when I understand that, you know, the, the, empty, the messages from emptiness start to rise up. Something comes forth and that's at that gate because we're not leaving our condition by but we're also resting in something much bigger. And my teacher always says, there's something bigger always with us all the time. And let's listen. It should be calm enough to listen. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, what you were saying about the compassion and as a parent, I have two kids, I'm also a teacher, it's often hard. The hardest thing is like seeing other people suffering and sometimes not doing anything about it. Like there is this feeling like you need to start solving the situation, especially as a parent. Yeah. And at the same time, it's hard because as a parent, to some extent, it's your job and responsibility actually to solve their problems. So it's like this weird dance between letting your child's experience be your child's experience sometimes. And then Yet sometimes you're actually supposed to be stepping in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there are all these social, you know, conventions and dictums around that. And they're not always 
wisdom either. They're not always wisdom. It's not always wisdom that's being imparted as far as our society's expectations about, you know, how people are going to be, how parents are going to be. So that dance of not getting stuck in parenting, I find it extremely hard to stay in the flow without an idea when so much of what's given to us by society are ideas about what a successful life looks like, how your kids are supposed to act, how they're supposed to turn out. Um, yeah, you can't let it go completely. Yeah, right. Like we don't live in a cave, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's when I mean, you're describing, you know, the incredible challenges of parenthood, especially in our culture, because the messages are everywhere about how we should be and what's acceptable and you know, what's valued or not valued and you know, all of the projections and labeling of other people in negative ways, all of that is happening all the time. And you have children learn how to live in that kind of environment and find themselves and, you know, feel their goodness and worth. It's, it's really hard. Um, and there is no easy answer. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess all I can just say is that maybe there's some kind of little space where if you listen a little longer, something new might start to happen for your child or between you and your child. It's sort of like creating a space. And it's, it's interesting to me because when I create a space, it often feels like time slows down. Like it's almost like, oh, here's something, something can happen here that's outside of all of these categories. And yet it doesn't take that much time, actually, if you're there. But it's certainly not all the answers, but it's, it's a kind of a moment. Well, a thing like that happened, like actually my younger child was not doing well at school. Very dyslexic, couldn't learn to read in fifth grade, no. felt bad. So finally, you reach this end of the conventional wisdom moment. Yes. You know, and I took her out of school, oh. and now we're doing something called unschooling. Which is like you let go of all expectations, huh. stop trying to make them do anything, and wait for them to be interested in learning something, huh. and then empower them to do something. Mm -hmm. But it's like waiting. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just just giving, like okay, you don't want to read. Okay, wow, that's fine. Well, interestingly, two weeks after I started that, she actually yeah. learned to read. Oh my god, that was right. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> learned okay. reading her older sisters of Banda, you know, mm -hmm. but because suddenly I wasn't mm -hmm. like holding it anymore. Yes. And now I'm just leaving. Yeah. And where is this going? Yeah. I don't know. It's wonderful that you could really step back and let go like that. It's like this is your practice. And I know, but then she would like, be like, I'll never have any friends and I have no answers. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I can't produce friends. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Where will I fit into society? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But yeah. you step into like a very radical, I don't know, with someone else's life. It's kind yeah. of a, you know. Wow. Anyway. Well, thanks for sharing that. And um, it's kind of a testimony yeah. to what we're talking about.
the radical not knowing. Thank you. So maybe, okay, well, one more, Sharon. So, um, can I ask questions? Oh, sure. Okay. Um, so I want to work some of the story and talking, um, and I know that we're supposed to quiet our minds, but my mind is going about a mile a minute. Right. Um, and I and I started thinking about your formlessness and uh, being affected and uh, and all of that, and then having having only the only thing that we have is it's technically it's essentially right now. Mm -hmm. It's it's the current moment. So does does the time that has passed essentially become formless and uh, and just how I, I thought I, I wish I could just put it in words, right? Um, yeah, but it's 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 ah. so even just to say that that really. This whole process of form and performlessness—it's—it's it's happening now. But the being affected, the the actual um, and and the actually letting go of everything, just sort of letting things happen and becoming the moment. Um, that it just the, even the thought of it um, seems ginormous, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and and how 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 do you do that and just really just let go. Mm -hmm. um, that sounds like a big task. Okay, it is ginormous <laughs> and it is a big task and and we basically practice where we fall down, where, you know, it, it, I, I couldn't do it, you know, something came up and I, I needed to, you know, I got caught in what I'm going to do tomorrow or, you know, whatever you notice that is making that hard. We bring gentle attending to that without judgment um, because we're allowing whatever is here to come. And uh, that is a now. <laughs> that is a now. Yeah. So she's asking that question. Mm -hmm. how, how do I practice? That's a framework question. You want to know? Thank you, everyone. <laughs>